Most of us are pretty giving people, expecting nothing, not a transaction, but giving, actually knowing that you're not going to give it anything back. It's, there's some evidence it's encoded within our DNA as human beings. It's a fundamental tenet of every, every major religion, um, not just Christianity. The notion of helping the stranger, helping the foreigner, helping the person in need, if you know they are in need, and if you know that your help is actually helping, it's actually going where it's intended. You're about to meet a woman who has dedicated her life to paying it forward because she came to be in need, and the word went out, and complete strangers stepped up, and it just makes you feel good. Um, when you doubt, when you see so much to make you cynical or bitter about people, what are you going to do about people? That people can be and are fundamentally good and giving, and it restores your faith. It makes you feel good. So uh, I hope you enjoy the story of uh, Kelly. It was such a blessing. I saw God. I saw him work through people. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, I'm Stuart Watson. This is the In Her Words podcast. Welcome. Delighted you're here, and boy, I hope this interview makes you feel as warm and good as it made me feel, a woman who's been through a lot. My buddy Jeremiah introduced me to Kelly Turner, and she's been a cop in New Haven, Connecticut, and then she had a health crisis, which I'll let her tell you about and the community complete strangers just stepped up in a big way and that inspired her to pay it forward so if you really want to know the theme of this week's episode it's not just resilience it's not just bouncing back it's bouncing back to then pay it forward to others really you know fundamentally about the idea of giving here's Kelly where were you born I was born in New Haven Connecticut Hospital or home? Yale New Haven Hospital. For your mother, you're number what of how many? I am number four of, of five because I had because, a brother that died before uh, I was born. Okay. And was so, he an infant? Or? Yeah, he was an infant, but he died. Uh, my mother and father suffered a house fire, um, and she jumped out the window with him. My father had a broken leg, and he got out with my brother that's living now. Wow. So the brother that my mother had, when she jumped out the window, he hit the pavement. Uh, and so he died. And how old was this brother? Um, I'm not sure, but he was a baby. And do he you have any memory of that? No. No, because you weren't born. I wasn't born. I only know that from the stories that my mother told. And I only recently started hearing that when I say recent, so my mother's been gone three years now. Mm -hmm. Prior to her leaving, the year before, 
we encountered a young lady whose son passed. And that was when my mother started talking more about that because it brought it up and she was sharing her experience with her. But you, were you even aware that it happened? I was aware that it happened. I just didn't know those details until sitting there while my mother was sharing it with her. Wow. Yeah. And did other family members like cousins, aunts, uncles, did they tell you about it? No. Or... Mm-mm. Wow. No. And when you learned this, did you think, oh, I can kind of see how my mother responded to us? Like I could kind of see how that, could you see in retrospect how it affected her? I didn't see it growing up more or less after she was gone and after having experienced her sharing her story with this young lady, um, I think I kind of understood more about how she viewed people. Because one of the things that impacted my mother, I believe when all of that happened was she lost faith in relationship. Now there's a lot of other things that has happened but personal relationships like with a girlfriend because from what I understood or from what I remember from the story when she fell when she jumped out and she fell she went across the street to a friend's house that she knew they were very good friends and she had my brother in her hand in her arms and the lady would not open the door and so I don't know what that's all about that part was never something that she ever went back to find out or have a conversation. So I'm not sure, but I do know that as I was growing up different times where you have like childhood friends and then the relationship don't work out. Right. You know, you kind of hurt cause mm, this is taking me in somewhere else, but it's good. So I have a granddaughter, her, personality is very similar to mine. When I think back to my childhood as it relates to building friendships, she loves everybody and she just, everybody she comes in contact with, she just naturally gravitates to them and naturally wants them to be a part of her world, her friendship, right? And of course, in the world that we live in, that's not always the case. So now I'm going to go back to where my mother, when I was, when I was young, her age, going up and in, in, in having relationships that didn't work out, friendships that didn't work out, it was disappointing. But my mother would always encourage me, but also plant a seed like, you know, you're okay by yourself because friendships are this and friendships are that and, you know, you can't trust people type thing. She didn't come out and say it like that, but that's pretty much how I kind of received it. But just like my granddaughter, you don't listen to that. You want friends. You want to be, you know, in in with people. You want to establish relationships. So, yeah. You want everybody to like you. Yeah, yeah. And that's what my granddaughter is. My oldest granddaughter, she is like that as well. But her personality is not so much that she gets she gets hurt when relationships don't work out. And I'm still learning. People will let you down. And not everybody who says they're your friend or will act friendly has the same understanding. Like I always say, if you go to prison or go bankrupt, 
or possibly if you get pancreatic cancer, like stage four cancer, that's when you find out who your friends are. So very interesting that you would say that, and you're right, because just recently um, I've had a few conversations with different people. A lot of things are learned through pain. Joy, you learn things, but you don't, things are not really solidified through joy. They're solidified through pain. And I am a cancer survivor as well, third stage breast cancer. And so I had a very, very different experience, which has really transformed my life and catapulted in a direction I believe God wanted it to go. And what so, direction was that? Where I am now, who I am now. Just, which is? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> different. I believe I'm a different breed. Prior to cancer, I was an introvert driven, workaholic, creative. After? Not an introvert. That is the biggest thing that has changed in my life, that I am no longer in me. I have learned how to live outside of me, you know, outside of that shell. And I've learned... <laughs> my cancer experience birthed so much in my life. Here's that story or a snippet of that. When I was diagnosed with cancer, I was a police officer at that time. I was 10 years into that career. Were you on the street? I was on the street. But when I was diagnosed with cancer, no, yes, I was on the street because I went inside and did the processing prisoners fingerprinting in New Haven. It's ran by the sheriffs, not the police department, but the booking officer is a police officer. Okay. So I was the booking officer that booked all of the- In the jail. In the jail. In the New Haven jail. Mm -hmm. And so um, prior to me having cancer, I was on the street, I was working a beat. I was working the 11 to seven shift. I, for the most part, worked the midnight shift for a very long time. I think at that point it was almost, um, no, it was a variety of, of, of shifts. But in any case, after cancer, it transformed me because of the support, the different things that happened while I was going through cancer. I seen, I don't know what your background is spiritually, but I am a Christian and I um, study the Bible and I literally experienced the word in motion in my life. That was probably the most transforming portion of my journey during that. The outpour of love that was shown towards me in many various ways, as well as financially, was astounding to me. What's one that touches you to this day where you're like, she didn't have to do that? I was 36 years old when I was diagnosed with cancer. So up until this point, you know, you're the one who gets invited, goes to the wedding, or you go to the graduation party, or you go to whatever it is. You're the a, a, a attendee. Being on the other side of that and being the recipient of people coming because of me, that was different. That was an experience. 
they came to you. It wasn't like you got an invitation, you fulfilled a social function. They came to you. They didn't wait for an invitation. They said... They created and did something on behalf of me, for me. What, what it, did they create? So there is an, uh, an officer named um, Officer Roddy. When I got sick, and was told by the oncologist that I am going to have to come off, you know, come out of work because the treatment that I was getting ready to undergo was extremely um, debilitating. And so I wasn't able to really be around people. I couldn't eat out in um, buffets or food, you know, places anymore because of how it can possibly be served and the type of medication that I was going to be, that was gonna be administered to me will mess with a lot of my cells and all of that stuff, my immune system, so they couldn't risk me getting sick um, or getting food poison or something like that. So I'm coming out of work, don't know what I'm gonna do, don't really have any sick time. I did some research and felt and learned that I can get 12 week leave, family leave, but after 12 weeks, I have to return back to work because the job was only um, obligated to hold my position for 12 weeks. So there was a group formed, unbeknown to me, within the police department. There's something that's called a sick bank. Your salary is given to you every week based on as if you were working. They bank their sick time to you. Yeah, so you had like a you can get you can save up to 150 hours as an officer. A lot of officers, believe it or not, don't take off from work. They work. So they accumulate a lot of um, hours. But I was allowed to go into the sick bank and I was in that sick bank for 18 months. And the only time I came out of that sick bank within that 18 months was when I was able to get my vacation time. So that means about 20 officers contributed all of their time to allow you to have that 18 months. Yeah, however they, they worked that. I don't know how that works out, but it worked out. When the light bulb went on and you realized, oh my God, I don't have to worry about the 12 weeks. It didn't process like that. Being told that I had cancer, number one, was extremely traumatic. Mm. So that was shock. And that was shock for some time. And then from there, it was just a, it was, it was almost a snowball type of effect. So I didn't have time to process that. Prior to having cancer, I have very long hair. I've always had long hair. And that was one of the first things and the only thing that I heard the oncologist say when I was being told what that process or what the strategic plan was for them to combat this, this uh, cancer. Well, I was stuck on losing my hair. Well, I now I'm going to be bald. I don't know what my head looks like under there. I've never been bald. I've had short hair only because I cut it a few times, but it'll grow back. Um, so it was a lot of those kind of things. And then losing my hair, it was almost immediate from the first chemo treatment. It was extremely painful. So I was going through all of these kinds of things physically and emotionally within just dealing with the whole thought process that I have cancer is, is what they told me. 
and all of the other stuff was happening along with that. But I wasn't focused on that. I was focused on me having cancer. I was stuck there for a minute. Um, what did your hair represent to you? Mm, I don't know if I can ever say that it actually represented something to me, but um, I had long, pretty hair. My mother kept it groomed. Um, How did it, she style it? Uh, straight braids, ponytails, curls. Shirley Temple curls was my favorite. <laughs> what does that look like? Did she wrap it up or did the ponytails and the pigtails go down your back? or did they, they went down my back, but my mother had this kind of very, I, I haven't seen it since then, but it's kind of funny. So my mother would press my hair. That was <laughs> an experience every time she had to do my hair because my hair wasn't straight. It was kind of nappy, so it would, she would have to detangle it. It was a process. And then. Painful. Painful. And then, of course, she had to press it out, which is back then it was a, a hot comb on the stove. And, you know, if I moved while, she, you know, I had my little ears burnt or my little neck burnt because I moved, right? And she would tell me, don't move, don't move. But the heat as it's coming down, the hair is like, ah! So uh, a couple of times I got a little air burnt and my neck burnt uh, because I moved, but it was just all of that. But when it was finished, my mother would uh, wrap my hair with old stockings. She would put it in ponytails and wrap the ponytail like really, really tight with an old stocking. And then she would like, so it was stiff where I could do like ram horns and, <laughs> you know, turn it different ways and have it do different things. But it was to protect the hair so it didn't get all puffy or whatever. Cause and this took how long? Maybe a couple of hours. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of hours. And I got my hair done once a week on a Saturday morning. Yeah. And then, of course, I wore that. She protected it. with If it wasn't in curls, she protected it with that stocking wrap. So the next day when we went to church, my hair was still straight. And she didn't have to straighten it again. Yeah, and you probably um, look really nice. I believe I did. Yes. I do believe I did. And I have some pictures to prove it. Yeah. So, but anyway. Um, so there's a lot of pride and a lot of sort of sense of this is who I am. If I don't have any of this, then who am I? You know, like this is a real loss. It's like losing a finger or it something. It is a real loss. And then the way that I lost, it was extremely painful. And it happened immediately, like after the first treatment which is why the doctor told me that it was better for me to get my hair cut very short to lessen the shock of it coming out. So I did just that. I had the surgery to put the port in my chest to be able to receive the chemo that was being delivered a week later. And then um, she suggested that I get my hair cut, got my hair cut short. And almost immediately after that first treatment, that hair started coming out. But as it was releasing the follicles, mm -hmm. it was extremely painful. The way I explain that is it felt like having a surgery done. You're being cut. No anesthesia. Yeah. It was very, very painful when the follicles were releasing the hair from my, from my head. And it felt like somebody was just ripping the skin off my head with no anesthesia. Just, it was just constant pain here. So I would look in my in the mirror and I had spots because, you know, I, I, everywhere I sat, I left hair. Everywhere, I, if I laid down, I would get up. It's just hair. You know, if I touched my hair, my hair is in my hands. 
And that whole process was very scary. And um, nobody could tell me when it was going to stop, which is weird. But so that was a very traumatic portion. Um, who stepped up and said or did something that at least offered you a little support and comfort during that? It like came in so many different ways. Right after the first chemo treatment, my hair started falling out. You know, September 11th, the actual tragedy that we underwent as a, as a country happened that year. On the 10th of September, my former pastor's wife, they had a house in Florida. So she invited me to go there just to relax and rest for that week. And then that incident happened on the 11th, which grounded us. We couldn't fly, so now we're stuck. The initial fundraiser that was done by my colleagues at the police department was supposed to happen that following Sunday. Well, we were released to leave Florida and went out on a flight that Saturday. So I was able to get back for that fundraiser. I had an extremely supportive support system. Very, very. In ways and people that I did not know. I, I met strangers. a lot of people, strangers. So Not when, just the church, mm -hmm. not just the fellow officers. Mm -hmm. Strangers, people that heard about my situation, did not know me, came. So the fundraiser that they did that Sunday, it yielded probably almost, I would think, 300 bikes. People came from all over the tri-state area. They sent out what is called a BOLO officer signal four, which means officer down, officer needs assistance, and they came. That fundraiser that they did that day, it was a motorcycle ride. When they started, me and my family, we had went to one of the corners and watched them go by. So I was there with my family and we were waving and they went by and then we left there and that ride went on like a scenic ride and they ended up at a club called um, Vandome was the name of the uh, club in uh, Hamilton Street in New Haven. So he had the club, they had food, drinks, everything there. Bikers, people came from the different, like the fire department, corrections. And it lasted from like two in the afternoon to like two in the morning. So that each shift of workers, wherever, could come and enjoy and see me or whatever. I was there and when I left, the party was still going on until two <laughs> o'clock in the morning, different shifts that came. I've done a lot in my life, but this was the moment when a lot of that stuff came together and it's like, okay, this is how you touch people. My brother had a recording studio, downtown New Haven, and me and him created a talent show. So there was one particular guy, his name is Joe Broadnax. He lives in Massachusetts now, but he came down as a surprise and he sung to me, serenaded me. They put me in a chair in the middle of the, the, the dance floor and all of that kind of stuff was happening around me. When, this, when I left, two supervisors walked me to the car. They handed me a sackcloth bag and inside of that bag was all cash. It was over $16,000. Wow. We got to my mother's house and... Uh, it was just a moment that is like un surreal. Like, who does this? Like, so I took the bag and I just threw it up in the air and it just <laughs> flowed all over the place. It's kind of hard to go back 
and um, even in my mind and visualize that because it was such a blessing. I saw God. I saw him work through people to bless me in a way that I would have never, ever, ever imagined to have that kind of experience. And that whole experience, it changed my life. It changed. It, it just changed. So there is a scripture in the Bible that talks about God will prepare a table, you know, in front of your enemies, will prepare a table before you in the, in the front of your enemies. And he will cause men to give unto you from their bosom. I experienced that. Like I experienced it. I seen it in motion. I seen it in action. I seen him turn relationships around. I seen him bring people to my house that I had issues with and they had issues with me. But a lot of all of that was healed through that whole process because sitting on death's door, it, a lot of people don't get to have this experience, but when you're able to reconcile your life, not knowing whether or not you're going to leave or live, I didn't know I was going to survive. I had no idea. It didn't feel that way. It didn't look that way. And the test didn't show that, you know, the surgeries, the multiple surgeries and multiple tests and the sickness and all of the different things that that medication did to my body. It's, it's to be here today. <laughs> it's nobody but God, nobody but him. Nothing that I did, nothing that I could have done, only him. All of the support that I've had, all of the support that I've been given, even now, you know, it's just a favor of God. And I have, I, I can't take ownership of none of it because it's not me. It's not, it's a mission. It's, it's something, it's whatever God has for my life. That's what's happening right now. I didn't see this. I had no knowledge of this. This was not in my dreams. It wasn't in my Nothing. It just was not. All of what I'm living today was birthed out of my cancer experience. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. Where did the idea of, you called it chain? Where did the idea of chain come from? Great question. And I have an answer. I was going to a chemo appointment and a young lady that we were, I knew her because we were in a drill team years ago. I heard she had cancer, but I didn't know she was still treating. And I didn't know to the extent of what her uh, diagnosis was. In that brief moment of us talking, she shared 
the hardship that she was having. So I asked her if we could meet because after that meeting, she was heavy on me that she was going through that. And here I'm on the other side of that. Blessed, you know, not when you say to. heavy on you, I'm not sure what that means. Resting. Just uh, I'm, I'm thinking about her situation, thinking about what she said. Thinking oh, it was about heavy on your heart. Heavy it, on my heart that right. she was going through that. So we have, I reached out to her to see if we can meet, and we did. Her heart for people, my heart for people. I suggested that we do something to create a fund or something that we could basically give people what was being done for me. Pay it forward. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that was exactly how we termed it at that point to pay it forward. The original name was Connecting Hands, Assisting Interim Needs, because what we saw was a chain. Mm -hmm. The more we brainstormed, we just saw a chain linking up, linking people together is what we saw. When I continued it, it became compassionate hands, assisting interim needs from my heart, you know, to be able to assist people. And it has performed in that way since then, a chain effect. Wow. I can tell you story after story, state after state, city after city. It's well, been... tell me one that was in the early days that first, like you were able to see, because plenty of these kinds of things don't last 20 years. No, they do not. What was one of the early ones where you thought this, this, this got, we've got something here. The chain's going to keep going. This is not going to be a one shot deal. I met with another lady. I had shared an office space with um, some friends of mine that was doing mortgages and real estate. And they invited me to come in and, you know, bring the chain fund in. So now I have an office. I was working out of my home all this time. So now I have an office. So I'm in the public's view. Mm. And I was sitting there, I invited this lady to come and sit down because she said she has some fundraising ideas. And she said, oh, you should do a dinner and a movie. So I'm writing all of this stuff down. The next day I moved to figure out, okay, how do I do this? So I called the um, Showcase Cinemas and they said, well, we can't do the dinner and a movie. And so she says, well, what we could do is I can um, let you use the theater this Saturday morning. Thus, my event that I've since trademarked, Breakfast in a Movie, was ah, birthed. I love it. So, so you literally hold the trademark on Breakfast in a Movie. I literally have Breakfast in a Movie. <laughs> so the story with that, which is why I'm really here today, even sitting here talking to you, is because of that, again, that Breakfast in a Movie. So I did the Breakfast in a Movie two weeks later. I had a breakfast in a movie. Oh, wow. Soup to nuts. Wow. 14 days. From that day talking, 14 days later, here's what happened. Tyler Perry at the time was launching his first film, Diary of a Mad Black Woman. Uh -huh. I knew that was coming out. I knew it was highly anticipated. And so I created this event around that movie. I talked to the women that I know that cook well and do all of the events at church. Locked that down, no problem. Rose went to work doing what she does for the church, for me. 
you know, put the meal together. I cooked the meats. She did the eggs, the grits, the, and we went and got yogurt and pastries and all kind of stuff. So you had bacon, sausage. All of it. We had everything. And at that point, that first one, I had even, I call them, um, I had this, the chicken sausages that had the pineapple in it and gourmet <laughs> sausages because I, I had did that. It was a smaller crowd. We literally sold 297 tickets in 14 days. Wow. So it's fundraiser. Fundraiser. So we did it. And again, I didn't know what I was doing. I cooked the meats. Rose handled everything else. We knew we had to have a table. I had the theater, put the table in front of the theater. We didn't even think or even consider that we needed somebody to serve the food. The people that showed up early <laughs> rolled their sleeves up and became our servers. People just fell into place. I literally built this thing from a concept in my mind and walked it out and perfected it along the way. Got to the point in 2009, so many people wanted to come. We went from 297 people and the whole idea was I was following Tyler Perry's movie. So what he did was the first movie came out in February 2005. Mm -hmm. And then the next year, February, he did another movie. I had another, I did another breakfast in a movie, 297 people. Always sold out within two weeks of starting to do it. And then the third year, I went from 297 people to 1,500. Oh, my no, word. No, 297 people to 851 people. So that's multiple screens. You had to be... Because the second year, I'm talking to the manager who opens the theater. We had to open the theater at 5.30 in the morning. In Kelly, that's almost 1,000 people showing up in the morning. Wrapped around the building from and they stayed at, we opened the doors at eight o'clock they were this is in new england new connecticut february it's snow cold in the zero degrees temperatures <laughs> they showed up and was standing outside in line until we opened the doors that was our third year and then we continued that every year it just was a, it I didn't see it. I, I I did not see what it is today. I did not see it. It was it was just the most amazing now thing. Now the proceeds go to a good cause. So what is that cause? Great question. I got an answer. <laughs> okay. So out of myself and the lady that started this with me, I told you about that that whole thing. This was it addressed what was happening to me, what she didn't have. Household expenses paid for, ah. things paid for. And it was specific. It was set up and it's still set up that way. We don't give the person money. We set it up where we pay your service provider. It was bare basic essentials. Your mortgage, your rent, your utilities, prescription copays. So you pay the utility it. bill. You pay the pay copay. Pay the mortgage, pay the, um, yeah, or pay a percentage of whatever the mortgage or the, the bill is. We didn't do... It's helping you get by when you can't be on the job. When you can't work. It's your basic household necessities that can keep you in the house. That. That's what the chain fund has meant to a lot of people in 20 years. Like a lot of people go bankrupt, not just because of the health care expenses. It's also because 
of the absence of any kind of income. And so you're addressing that. We were built to address that interim need. It wasn't permanent. It was an interim need. It was a temporary need that you needed to have this done for you. Right. And we paid accordingly to what, of course, fundraising is expensive. Yes, nonprofit, but nobody's giving you money. That also addresses the notion that there are people who get through the cancer and they have this crushing debt. It was like, you don't have to worry about this. You got enough to worry about with the cancer. Yeah, our, our tagline was we pay the bills that matter the most ah. to a cancer patient that's undergoing treatment and cannot work. Yeah, these are yeah, what they the call doc- fixed costs. Yeah, the doctor has, has uh, diagnosed, has, has basically said that you're incapable of working right now. Yeah, this is not a mani-pedi. Mm-mm. Yeah, this is good, keeping the lights on, keeping the heat on in New Haven, yep. Connecticut. Making sure that you can call your doctor and the doctor can call you. Making sure you had a comfortable place to lay your head. and then Because families. the phone bill is paid. Yeah, and just think about who this happens to. It happens to parents who has kids that are going to school. They still need their household. They yeah. still need their house intact. It's one thing to have to see your parent suffer going through this disease. And then now you don't have no, nothing to eat. You don't have nothing because now you, this person can't work. Everybody doesn't have a sick bank like I had. All jobs don't have sick banks. And all jobs do not have to keep your job for you to come back. You know, that family leave is only 12 weeks. Yeah. That's only three months. So what brought you to Charlotte, North Carolina? The breakfast in the movie. Oh, really? Somebody You who, started doing it down here. Who, so I have retired in 2012. Yeah. January 6, 2012, I retired after 20 plus years with the police department. Whitney Houston had just died that same week that I retired. Mm-hmm. And I knew that that movie was coming out in August. Mm-hmm. And so once I know a movie is coming out, I can plan a breakfast and a movie around it. I came down for the first time March 12th. I've never been to Charlotte before. And I started networking, pounding the pavement, talking to people. It was my mother and another friend of mine, uh, Edna, who traveled with me. And I did that from March 2012 until July of 2014. And I came down every month for That's that. That's a whole week. For a week, 12 hours down and back. Wow. And I would fly when I could. Did, on that ride. did you have anybody come with you or you? my mother my mother was my road dog at the time we would <laughs> we would go from connecticut to rocky mount pick up my friend edna because she had moved from connecticut to rocky mount but me and edna would get out and just we would just beat the streets we would talk to every single person everybody we came in contact with and we would do it every month for a week you can probably network through the church, too, if you've got a church home, right? But we didn't have a church home. Oh, you did? I have a, so, so you had it, to just... It's a progressive story. So, but here's what we accomplished. Not knowing anything or anybody, yet the girl that moved here, she introduced her to a few people, but the majority of the people that we came in contact with, we did business with, and was successful in getting all this together, was just God, how he just moved so many things that happen, I don't have the ability to have, I don't have that kind of power to do that, to make those kind of connections. August 17, 2012 was the first fundraiser. We had 500 people attend. Wow. 
the very first one. We have 500 people to attend. I know nobody. From zero to Novant 500. Novant Health sponsored food for a thousand people. Wow. The radio stations got behind me and did all kinds of things. Promotion. Promotions. The newspapers. Yeah. I was only on the ground, boots on the ground in Charlotte, five weeks. March, April, May, June, July, uh-huh. August, we did the event. Uh-huh. What this says to me is your mother had an experience which told her that at an individual level, people can be very cold. They can keep their door locked. But what you're telling me is on an individual level and also businesses, you know, these people got to make money, keep the doors open. If they just know the specifics of that this is going to a good person, there's this huge reservoir of goodwill out there that people want to help other people. They just need to know that it's going to go to actually help people. As Anne Frank said, deep down, people are good. The vast majority of people are good, and they want to do for their their fellow human. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to develop a system that works, one of the things that we talked about when we first started the whole brainstorming thing, we weren't giving people money because a lot of people, right, even with that, think, okay, well, they're going to do this with the money and not pay the bill. Right. So we, didn't, we took that out. No, we Or pay. there might be a family member that'll intervene and divert. However, yeah. it just won't go to what it was intended to. Right. So we took that out. Now we're paying the money directly to the service provider. Right. We're calling the service provider, hey, we're sending X amount of dollars on this bill. Here's the balance. We'll let them know. And so we'll send a letter, hey, we paid, if the mortgage was $1,300, if, if we had the money, we pay $500. Mm-hmm. We'll pay $500 and there is a balance. Well, there's nothing I can do about the balance, but let we at least took care of that. But the other thing that we were doing too, we were paying what we knew they couldn't. And of course, in the beginning, I had to do a lot of the interviews. I had to do a lot of everything, just me, because I didn't have a staff to You're do this. vetting the people. Right, so you have to vet them. What's your greatest need? Mm-hmm. If I was to pay, if I was able, so what, what, if I was able to give you $1,000, where would it benefit you best? And so you kind of take them through that. And if they say, well, I can pay my light bill, I'm having problems paying my mortgage or my rent, then we'll look at what we have to distribute. And then we say, okay, we're going to put $700 towards your rent or your mortgage, and we're going to put $50 here because you can handle that. And we just kind of worked with them. So that's pretty much how the expansion of the chain fund has happened. I didn't necessarily know that as I was building it because Mm -hmm. I learned as I went, I didn't have any knowledge of how to do this. I believe that God taught me and put these things in place along the way. I just had to keep walking and I had to keep encouraging myself that this is going to happen. And now I know what is necessary. I know what to do. And for 20 years, this is the visual that I have when I look back at what I did. I was the little hamster in the wheel 
<laughs> making it happen. Running around. So I don't have a visual of what's happening around me, the aerial view, how it should be. I didn't have that because I was the one. Yeah. All you know, all I knew is that I had to make money. I had to produce money. I had to raise money. By any means necessary, I had to get it done. I am so incredibly grateful to know you and to have your time. If we get struck by lightning today, and the only thing that survives is this little piece of audio, digital audio, um, what is your legacy? My legacy is authenticity. What do you mean by that? I think that authenticity gets lost. The maintaining of any kind of legacy that is built somewhere along the line through transfer of people or whatever, the authenticity of it gets lost. I don't know what that means though. When I, what I mean is the essence, the heart of it. Who the real person was? Who the real person was and the heart, you know, the essence of who they were, the essence of what their life meant, the essence of the very thing, the emotion that drove them to that. And the one thing that I can say about me is I'm authentic. Like if I tell you that I love you, it's not mere words. I mean it. Who is it in your life, your grandkids, your kids, somebody, um, who carries that? My who? granddaughter, Imani Nyasia Moore. She's the one. She understands you. She, she is it. the... She is it. She gets it. She embodies. She embodies it. Congratulations. Thank you. I just want to bless other people. You blessed me this morning, so thanks. I appreciate that. Thank you. I am so grateful to have met Kelly, and I'm so grateful to our mutual friend Jeremiah for introducing us. If you want to introduce me to some of your friends, love to hear it. Hit us up, manlistening.com. Hit us up on In Her Words podcast on Instagram. Um, hit us up on you know the website, wherever. Uh, love to hear it. Uh, you can direct message me. I'm all over the place, all over the socials. Um, I also uh, am recording life stories um, as a business, uh, which I founded about a year ago called Voice Locket, if you want to check that out. And there's going to be some exciting news about that coming up in the near future. So thanks for listening. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for man listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge thank you and my gratitude to all the people who have supported man listening and in her words from the very, very beginning. Thank you so much. Thank you for your support. 
we believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.